The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mysteries of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and today on the podcast, I'm connecting with Maya Toll, author of the award-winning book, The Illustrated Herbiary. Maya followed that book up with The Illustrated Bestiary, and in June 2020, we'll see the forthcoming title, The Illustrated Crystallary. I wanted to talk to Maya about developing a relationship with the more-than-human world and have this conversation through the lens of climate change and dynamic social change. How do we approach our spiritual practice of being in relationship with nature in a time when the Earth is being forced to adapt to human impacts at a rate faster than it can stabilize? It's a tough topic, but one that surely our spiritual practice is meant to equip us for, yeah? So, without further ado, I connected with Maya online. She was at home in Asheville, North Carolina. So, Maya, what identities do you lead with? I don't. I've been pushing against identities since I was very young. Um, I think that they box us in. They push us into corners. And I try really hard not to put one out there. Um, I I don't want to meet an identity. I want to meet a human being. Mm. Mm-hmm. Do you want to give people a little bit of background then just to give a sense of our topics today so they understand kind of like where you're getting <laughs> your authority or like where, where they can follow up with you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm the author of uh, a series called the Wild Wisdom Series. The first book is the Illustrated Herbiary. The second book is the Illustrated Bestiary. And um, coming out in June will be the Illustrated Crystallary. And I also trained with um, a traditional healer in Ireland. I lived with her for a year. So most of my earth-based studies were grounded there. I'm not going to say began there, but were grounded there. Um, and previous to that, I, I studied spirituality, religion, philosophy in school. So I've been in this world for a while and... Um, I find that connecting to archetypal consciousness and uh, a consciousness different than what I think of as our, as our daytime consciousness, mm-hmm. I think of it more as our nighttime consciousness, that kind of ability to soften our gaze, to see things in metaphor, um, has, has helped me to feel like I belong in this world. You know, it's helped me to to settle some of those anxieties that were so prevalent when I was younger about like, why am I here? What's, what does this all mean? Um, so that I can create meaning for myself and help other pe- people create meaning for themselves. Mm-hmm. Can you give me a sense of um, where you're speaking from? Like what land do you belong to right now? <laughs> the dreamlands, usually. Um, I, I, you know, I think that you're asking me a physical place on this earth, and physical place on this earth is is Asheville, North Carolina. Um, and do you feel that that is the place that's shaped you, or or you mentioned Ireland? Is or like, is there some other place that sort of shaped you and and helped you? Um, like you said, before Ireland, you were in this kind of liminal way of being. What land helped you become that way? I would say if, you know, if we're talking about 
actual experience of the landscape that shifted me. Um, probably Greece would mm. be like the first time I remember walking walking in a place and seeing other places overlaid. Mm-hmm. You know, that mm-hmm. sense of here and not here at the same time. Mm-hmm. I think the first time that that happened was probably in Greece. Um, and then I ask you where you were in Greece. I had that same experience at Canopy oh, on Crete. I oh, thought I was just, I had heat stroke until I started kind of seeing uh, like, yeah, sorry. Can you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was on a sailing trip, so we were hitting a lot of small islands oh. and it was, I mean, it was fascinating. We would go to different ruins and I was traveling with my family and I would be like, oh, mom, follow me around this bend is where the garden used to be. And then look over that way. There was a watchtower and you can see the next one over there. And my mother would just be like, wow, you have an amazing imagination, dear. You know? <laughs> it, was, it was clear as can be. Um, so I found that especially when I'm um, in more ancient places, places that have had humans for a long time, uh, it's often easy for me to read the landscape and to see the old energy patterns, what used to be there, you know, mm-hmm. what is that, is that the way it was for you? Yeah, actually. And when I went to France and studied with my teacher in France, my intuition teacher, um, I was telling her about strange experiences I was having where I'd be like, oh, we need to pull over on the side of this unmarked road. And then we'd end up at some like Cathar historic site where 200 people had been burned or something like that. And, and <laughs> she was like, yeah, there are all these vortexes that like some people are pretty and and realized eventually that I was following the path of Mary Magdalene and kind of just it hadn't planned that part of the trip at all. Um, but yeah, Greece and France have had those experiences. So isn't that interesting? That's probably more universal than we think is people think they're, you know, getting travel sickness or something like that. But, it, you know, it's just like, oh, I'm actually entering a totally liminal, timeless space. And if I could regulate my nervous system, maybe I might be able to see these things and have a sense of what happened. Yeah. 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 And I think also, you know, quieting the people who are saying to you, oh, what a great imagination you have. Yeah. You know, um, when I, I take people to Ireland once a year and I, I really, I take people to a spot and I dump them there for four hours. I mean, I'm there too. Yeah. Um, the, the idea is that we get to be in the space with ourselves not listening to the input of everyone else. And it makes people uncomfortable. People are like, tell me what to do. Tell me what to say. Tell me how to, how to relate. And by the second or the third or the fifth day, people are like, oh, this is such a relief. I get to be here and have my own experience of this place and, and see what comes up for me. Um, but a lot of times the people we're traveling with don't allow us to tap in. Mm. They're chattering way or turning up the radio or whatever it is that they're doing. And you're like, wait, wait, I almost caught that thing and now it's gone. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. I think in all three of your books, there's some reference of your time in Ireland. You you mentioned um, uh, listening to the standing stones and visiting them with your teacher um, and developing a deeper relationship with the non-human world. Um, You also mentioned uh, dealing with feelings of isolation and loneliness. It seems like it was a really formative time for you. Can you share like what you were doing, what you were studying and why that specific place called to you? 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was I was raised in the Northeast, and you know, lawyer father, family therapist mother, um, very overeducated. I'm extremely overeducated. I was trying to use my brain from a very young age to question everything, to flip everything on its head. You know, my dad would sit at the dinner table and practice his closing arguments for for court. And our job was to punch holes in it. So for me, this idea of liminal space um, was something I was experiencing, but there were no words for it. There was no um, language, compassion, empathy from my family around that because it wasn't how they experienced the world. So as I was um, growing up, I was you know sinking deeper and deeper into this world that uh, I was enculturated into. And it wasn't, it wasn't always a great fit, but it was my world, right? And I think a lot of us um, understand that and know that. And then I got sick. I was in my 20s. I was living in New York City. I was teaching at a small private um, school. And um, I got sick in a way that, that never got named. Um, and I think that had it been like later, later years, um, probably would have been diagnosed with celiac disease. Mm. Uh, I stopped, I, I'm, I'm 50 and I stopped eating wheat 26 years ago mm-hmm. when, mm. when all this was going down. Um, so my medical doctor at that point was running all these tests, taking all these uh, different readings. And she finally said to me, listen, Western medicine is not going to resolve this. I'm studying Chinese medicine. I'm new at it. I don't know enough to help you, but I know enough to know that there are other systems beyond Western medicine that see the world differently, and you've got you've to find your way to something else. Now, 25 years ago, there was not much else that was easy to find or that was considered legitimate. And, you know, it's been amazing to watch over the past couple decades. Um, acupuncture and uh, Reiki and homeopathy, all these things, they're still not mainstream, but they're easy to find. It's easy to find reviews of people online. Mm-hmm. Wasn't much online, you know, at that point. Um, and to really be able to find legitimate pra- practitioners. But at that point, I was going into little offices and basements of brownstones in New York City. I was like, picking my way through the wellness underworld, (laughs) trying to find help. And eventually, um, someone made me spit on some piece of paper that they put in some machine and they took me off a whole bunch of food. Mm. And within a week, I started feeling better. Mm. Three months later, I started adding foods back in and it became really apparent that I could not eat wheat. But that introduction through wellness, through my own need to, to find healing, um, it cracked my brain open. And this is not the first time my brain got cracked open. You know, I, um, it's, it's, there, it's so interesting like to have this. I don't think of, of um, living 50 years as living particularly long. But when you look at what's happened in the meantime, in my 20s, I was dating both men and women, and that was considered 
bizarre and a big deal. And so like when I say my brain had been cracked open before that, you know, that moment where you go, whoa, I'm dating a woman and hold on a sec, this whole happily ever after meet a prince thing, that's not true. (laughs) Wow. Now all the Disney movies aren't true, you know? (laughs) So this was not the first time my, my brain was starting to get used to like, whoa, the world is not what you were told it was. So now all of a sudden, Western medicine, which I'd been raised on, which I was told could cure everything. Um, it couldn't cure everything anymore. Mm-hmm. So there are all these really major cracks in the foundation of my Western intellectual thought that were mm-hmm. appearing. And I began getting interested in, you know, kind of following those rifts. And I started looking into herbalism. I had been studying religion and spirituality and philosophy in school for a very long time. So that piece was already kind of, you know, roiling around in my brain. But all of a sudden there was this earth-based piece that hadn't been there before. Um, And I for years, just kept accumulating knowledge and accumulating knowledge. So six, seven years later, we land in upstate New York, where I now have a home and I'm I'm teaching um, and studying shamanism. And um, my world started to unravel. And it was, it was fascinating because, because I think I was studying shamanism. I was in school to become an interfaith minister at the time um, I had this like one foot in the liminal, liminal world, one foot in the physical world stance already. And so my liminal self said, wow, everything's unraveling. You know, I had, I had two roommates who were helping me with a mortgage, both of whom decided to move out for various reasons. Um, I was teaching numerous part-time jobs and, they started falling apart for the strangest reasons, misbalanced books and, you know, not enough funding and all sorts of things. And I had enough um, of that kind of liminal mindset that I was carrying through my daily life that I said, huh, things are unwinding. I can either go willingly or, <laughs> or go down. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I went willingly. I put my house on the market and the town I was living in had really boomed over the time I was living there and I'd been fixing up my house myself. So um, just a lot of of value put in and I left that house with a very large bank account for a teacher. And I said, okay, I get to start the next phase of my life and I don't know what that is. So I sat down and I made a list of everything I'd ever been interested in. Pottery, herbalism, all kinds of different spiritual things. I just, you know, I had a list literally three pages long. Mm. Um, And it was just sitting next to the computer. And um, every day I'd add add to it, do some searches, but it wasn't going anywhere. I was still kind of in that, like, what am I doing? My house is going to be sold in three weeks and I don't know what I'm doing. Um, And then I had a dream. Mm. So this was an at night dream, not an I have a dream dream. And um, I... I dreamed that a very androgynous looking woman with like waist length, dark hair flew me across the ocean to an Island that I knew was Ireland. It was, it was wooded in the dream, which Ireland has not been for many, many thousands of years. 
Um, and she said, this is where you're going to be initiated. Hmm. And, um, and she flew me there and she said, go and study the birds. Hmm. And so I had no idea what that dream meant, but the Ireland part was pretty clear. So the next day, and this was like, I mean, to, get, to give you time frame, this was pre-Google. So I'm on Alta Vista search engine, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. You remember Alta Vista? And I'm typing in Ireland plus yeah. pottery, Ireland plus shamanism, <laughs> Ireland plus herbalism. Um, and I kept getting one hit and this woman ended up being my teacher. In, in Ireland. So uh, I went over for a two-month class she was doing, and then I begged her to keep me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I noticed you don't name your teacher. Is, can I ask if there's any reason for that? Um, I don't name her because I feel like the world has gotten very public, mm. and not everybody wants to be very public. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like it's it's her choice if she wants to be out there mm-hmm. in the world. I mean, it's findable, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's around in thank yous and, and on my website and, and mm-hmm. places like that. Like it is, it is findable. It's not like top secret, but I also, mm-hmm. um, I, I name her to my students, mm-hmm. but in public forums like this, I tend not to because yeah, the world is very different than it used to be. And not mm-hmm. everybody, not everybody wants to be in it mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. this way. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'd really like to talk about your books in in specific because there's a depth of research that is a bit unusual, especially in the you know lushly illustrated um, guidebooks and reference materials you find these days. Often they're actually a little light on content, <laughs> so um, there was a, clearly a lot of thought in the structure that you give the books. Um, the most recent one that uh, was released is the Crystallary, or no, sorry, the the uh, Bestiary. Um, and I, I notice you highlight animals who are endangered or whose habitats are under severe threat. And probably many of us who work as spiritual guides and healers, and, and, or even just those of us with particularly sensitive relationships to the planet, are really feeling you know, the burdens of grief and despair as the more than human world suffers from human activity and in even just overpopulation, just loss of spaciousness for our animal kin. And in fact, I think anybody who's a fan of your books probably um, has a very highly attuned, um, you know, spiritual system oriented towards Gaia and um, towards sort of the magic and mysticism of animals and stones and plants. so if you were to design like an altar or ritual for helping healers or those who have particularly sensitive systems to ecological grief, which plants and animals and stone allies would you, would you collect and why? I know you have very specific associations. So I'd love to hear for ecological grief, those of us who are sensitive or those of us who are healers, what would you bring together? Yeah. So um, what I would say right off the bat is you need to feel into it for yourself. Like if someone came to me with that question, um, I really don't believe in the guidebooks that say, you know, grab this stone, wave this herb, say these words. Um, To me, the whole point of this is to build kinship, to build relationship. And 
you start by asking the question, you know, who can support me? Because the truth is we're all feeling different things. Um, I often am working with students and we, you know, we go outside to sit with the earth and people come back and they're like, oh, she's so sad. It's all so sad. <laughs> and I am like, really? Because all I got was joy. Hmm. All I got was, you know, just lush and green and growing and, and yeah, I can feel those fires halfway across the world and that is renewal in the waiting. And so we all run the energy through our own system, through our own consciousness. We all interpret it differently and how different people interpret it. Um, I, and I would, you know, I put out there that there's a whole lot of transference going on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a whole lot of, I feel guilt. I feel bad. I feel horrible. I feel helpless. That's then being personified onto mother earth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the earth, the earth, The earth is kind of, okay, so let me, let me see if I can explain this. You have organs in your body. You're vaguely aware that they exist. You know you have a kidney. You know you have a liver. Um, humans are like the earth's liver or kidney. I mean, we're, we're probably more like the nervous system. Um, but we're a part of a larger system. That larger system is aware of us and kind of aware of the... Um, dysfunction that we can bring, but not like deeply focused in on humanity. Just like you're not deeply focused in on your liver. You know, you know, it's there. (laughs) It's doing some, some important stuff. Um, And so when I hear people expressing this extreme anxiety, that's their anxiety. Mm. You know, the earth is, is like going to be totally good without us. Mm-hmm. When we destroy ourselves, she's, all, she's okay. Um, the earth is used to cycles of destruction. That's part of the plan. Yes, I'm not saying that we're not pushing things. I'm not saying that we're not changing things. But just this idea of the earth being in despair, I, I have felt the earth not be not be so happy at, at times, but I don't feel that as kind of a universal overriding all the time thing. Um, so what I would say to people who want to do ritual, want to build an altar is, first of all, sort your feelings from what you're actually getting from the world around you and know the difference and then decide what you're building an altar to you know, what you're, what you're treating. Are you treating yourself or are you treating the earth? Um, are you, you know, reaching out to the energy of the koala bears who are now probably very much on a path to extinction? Like what are you tuning into? And start to get more precise. Um, I think it's really important, especially for healers. You got to know what's you and what's your feelings. And, and be able to thread that out. And then from there, from that place, really understanding what it is that you are connecting with and what it is that you want to work on or work with, then start to ask. And when you ask, listen to the answer for goodness sake. You know, someone said to me once, don't ask the tarot cards 
you know, two or three or seven times, <laughs> eventually they won't answer you anymore. So if you ask and something comes in, like if you're like, I, I need to go out into the woods and build an altar to honor the earth. Who wants to, to help me with this? And Birch stands up and says, I do. And you're like, Birch, why Birch? I don't understand. It doesn't matter whether you understand. You know, your job is to create kinship and to create relationship. And if Birch is the one that says, I'm in this party, then Birch is in the party. Mm-hmm. So you go find a Birch tree and you begin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In the crystal area, I found it really unique that you provide the hardness rating of each stone. Can you tell us more about um, like maybe some of the science behind, behind how that's determined, but also what significance that carries then in, from a more spiritual perspective? Yeah. So hardness is something that has been um, related to stones since ancient Greece, going back to Greece, (laughs) back around. Um, And the way it was determined then is actually still the way it's determined now. It's relative. So what stone will scratch another stone, right? So the hardest is diamond. Nothing scratches a diamond, Hmm. right? Um, The softest is talc. Hmm. Everything scratches talc. And then in between, um, you get these these numbers, and it's called the Mohs scale, M-O-H apostrophe S, Mohs scale. Um, So it's not, it it is scientific in that it is used by geologists, um, but it is not done with... um, tools and things like, I mean, it's done with other stones. It's not like put it in the spectroscope and spin it 17 times. It's not like that. Um, you know, it has to do with, with this scratch test. And what's fascinating about it is through the Taoist lineage, which is, um, it's been incorporated into traditional Chinese medicine, but a lot of the, a lot of the Taoist teachings are passed on word of mouth. And, um, within that lineage, not everything is written down and in the traditional Chinese medicine lineage. So mm. there's a, a, a lineage within Taoism that works with stones. There's many lineages that work with stones, but stones are considered medicine. Um, and with the, the hardness, what's interesting is the harder the stone, the, the more entrenched the condition is and the longer it's going to take to work through it. So if you're working with an emerald, for instance, it's going to take a while, like plan on it taking a while. And so, you know, you can almost work backward from that, right? If you're feeling attracted to emerald energy, then you're working with something that is deeper within you. Mm. And you just know from the outside, it's going to take longer. And I think sometimes if we set our expectations that way, like, you know, if, when this book comes out, it'll have cards like the, the herbiary and the bestiary. And if you pull one of these harder stones, um, it's like not something you're going to get through today. You can't get there and back before the sun sets, you know, like you're going to be working on this for a while. And so that allows you to set that expectation and to, to keep with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I guess it's worth mentioning that the crystallary hasn't actually been released yet. That's happening summer 2020. June. It comes out in June. Yeah. And um, you can pre-order. Great. Yes. Perfect. Yeah. That was something that I, uh, reading the advanced copy, I 
just thought was so useful for people who, I think crystals are an easy way to sort of dabble or enter. I mean, they're sparkly, they're shiny. There's a reason humans, you know, since the dawn of humankind have been attracted to um, these beautiful sparkly, but also resilient things or things that are malleable and they can shape. But I think that for uh, folks who are kind of just starting to explore their spiritual yearnings, there's a lot of like, well, this isn't doing anything or how do I know? And so that's a nice little rule of thumb. You know, if you put gold or some kind of mineral like that, that's been shaped on your body, there's often a lot of emotion that comes through right away. There's a, 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 you know, a sense of strength. There's a kind of immediate thing that happens. But if you have this rock that's, you know, a hard crystal sitting there for a long time, of course you can say, "I, I don't know that it's doing anything. So I think it's really good to let it you know, season for a bit. It seemed like yeah. a good rule of thumb. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how do you work with stones in a good way, considering, you know, I mean, they're, they're a byproduct of mining. You know, a lot of them come from like super harmful extraction economies, or they even, you know, can involve slave labor, labor, or child labor, things like that. So from a spiritual perspective, how do you work with that if, if you have stones, but maybe you don't know their provenance, and you might fear that the, you know, like they, they've been, they haven't been harvested in a good way. How do you personally sort of um, navigate what can be a kind of thorny or at least a site of struggle or discordance spiritually, I would imagine. Yeah. You know, I think first off, like the, the very first thing to remember is you don't have to have the physical stone. It holds an energy It it holds an archetypal energy, um, whether you are holding the stone or not. So start there, you know, um, one of my teachers, when I was uh, studying plant medicine, said to me, you need to work with foxglove. And I, I was like, oh, how dare you tell me to work with foxglove? It's, it's poisonous. You know, I, like, I got very like all on my high horse offended. And she looked at me and she said, did I say to ingest foxglove? She said, I said to work with foxglove. Um, there's something about stones that brings out our inner dragon and we want them all. right I mean no one has said to me when they read the bestiary um Maya it's illegal to import elephants and I can't keep one in my apartment you know like we understand that we can work with the energy of an animal whether it's present or not um you can also work with the energy of a stone or a plant whether it's present or not so so start from there like put down this idea that you have to have all, all the sparkly things Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's the first line. Um, the next line is if you want more of a physical relationship with the energy, but you're concerned about where the stone might've come from, or you're concerned about price because, you know, not everyone can buy an emerald or a diamond or a ruby or a sapphire. Um, gem elixirs are great. Mm-hmm. And so they're kind of a homeopathic version of, of a gemstone. They're put in water. They activate that water. So you can have an energetic experience um, with having some, some physical thing that you can touch mm-hmm. without having the stone. So that's, that's one piece of the puzzle. Another piece of the puzzle is the stones are all connected to each other. So walk yourself outside and pick up a stone. 
and ask it to introduce you to the stone that you don't actually have physically present, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's like they're all in the earth together and there is um, energetic awareness. So you can go that route. Again, in the, you don't need all the sparkly stuff and please don't hoard the sparkly stuff. Um, if you have a stone that you're not using, swap it with somebody. We do, medicine, we do medicine swaps in my online community. And it's a way of making sure that we're not overtaking, over-harvesting. If you've been using a stone and you know your work with it is done, pass it along to someone else who needs it. Hmm. Um, I have a very small collection of stones. You know, I have like my friends that hang out with me. They're with me. I, I sit with them. I work with them. Um, and I don't tend to go far beyond that circle. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you're going to shop, you know, I find that the best place to shop is small gem and mineral shows. A lot of times you can actually meet the miners, the people who are digging them. And they're people who are passionate about the stones. You know, there's a couple that I buy from who go to Arkansas um, every year. And he was a geology professor and like, this is their retirement. They go to Arkansas and they mine stones and they sell them at small shows. So you can find stones and there's something so sweet about finding stones that way. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the final thing is a stone might've been extracted in a not great way. Um, It's kind of like a child who's had a like really nasty upbringing And sometimes there's a healing that needs to happen for you or for the stone in that coming together. Um, You can look up at any given time where the the practices are particularly nasty, like Myanmar and the Congo tend to be places that mm, Mm -hmm. you you might not want to buy from. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've also, through going to shows and talking to people from all over the world at the shows, some of whom mine their own stones or, you know, their family mines. Um, a lot of the things that we see as incredibly important here in the States are not seen the same way in other countries. So the other thing is talk to people and understand what they think and feel about the work that they're doing. Um, you know, I've, Talk to people who have explained to me that for their family, you know, like, yes, it's ridiculously hard work and it's dirty and it's backbreaking, but they get to have a quality of life. They get to send the next generation to school. They like, they get to do things that are important to them. And so we need to um, not put our point of view on other people. Right. Mm -hmm. So again, like obviously slaves are a whole different circumstance. Um, but there's, there's some gray zone between slaves and the couple from <laughs> the couple who drives to Arkansas every year. You know, there's, there's a whole range of ways that things happen mm-hmm. uh, in the middle. And my personal experience is this is a great way to like to, to meet people. And I've met people from all over the world at these gem shows and talked to people from all over. Um, and yeah, I'm sure some people have lied to me, 
you know, people, yeah. well, what if they're not telling the truth? Yeah. 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 People lie to me. I'm sure people lie to me in the grocery store sometimes. Like, <laughs> yeah. I hear you saying that relationship is really important. And I've been to those gem shows too, where, um, the, the, you know, it's at a private hotel room and everybody has to wait until they say like, it's almost like a gavel goes and then everybody like descends upon the stones and buys it, you know, and you're all supposed to be invited as VIPs. And it's like, whoa, wait a second. Like suddenly the elbows go flying. And it was like, yeah, I, th- I feel now in retrospect, they probably lied when I asked them where things came from. And that's just an intuitive hit. I don't know. I won't say who they are. And yet when I go to my local Rockhound shop, it's, you know, it's the fourth generation in the family, you know, they, they go to the mines, they're, you know, friends with the children, you know, like, it's like intergenerational friendships across countries. And they do tell me like, yeah, you probably don't want these ones. They're from Tanzania or something like that, you know, where there's like serious problems. Um, Whereas, you know, this is, we actually know this family, they're in Russia, they're, you know, good friends, that sort of thing. So it is so much about relationship. And thank you for all your, um, uh, tips there. Those are super fantastic guidelines for people. Um, so I, I know that you also have, um, a a particular lens when you're working with allies, whether they're plant or mineral or, um, animals that, that includes, you mentioned like archetypal energies. And, um, I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on archetypal energies around these allies. And I also kind of circling back I think, yeah, my question about ecological grief is about the healer's ecological grief, not necessarily picking up on any grief of the earth. But let's say you're a person who is like, I would like to get out of my my grief or my projections, and I would like to harness more of a warrior archetype or something like that. And you have a sense that you would like to um, activate or mobilize a particular archetype within you. And I've heard you say, well, you know, you would just ask, you would ask them and see. Um, but I'm curious if you could just talk a little bit more about the archetypal energies and how we might work with any archetypal energies of the earth that um, may need human agency to help them mobilize um, in the face of climate change. Yeah. So, I, you know, I go back always to asking like, you know, we, we have these ideas about what we want and what we think should go down. Um, and I think that, that asking, just like, just, like, just like you would if a friend needed help, right? You would say, what, what do you need? What can I do for you? Um, instead of saying, here's what I think you need, right? Mm-hmm. So... One of the things, you brought up the word warrior, which was just fascinating for me. I had an experience um, a couple years back where I was feeling so frustrated because, you know, you're watching what's going down with the earth and your individual efforts feel like nothing. For a long time, my husband and I drove a grease car, like we straight. <laughs> grease left over from a restaurant. And it was, you know, a really old diesel that we'd converted and we drove around smelling like French fries and the car was always breaking down and it was like so much work. And at a certain point I was like, wow, I am not saving the world this way. 
I'm exhausting myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had so many of those experiences of trying to do something that I thought would really help and just ending up exhausted and disheartened. And so I, I sat down um, to meditate with uh, one of my smoky crystal friends. Um, and this word warrior, you know, was like top of my mind. Like, how, how do I fight this fight? And the crystal kind of laughed at me. I was like, hey, that's not fair. Um, <laughs> and, and said, you're not a warrior. I was like, what? <laughs> yes, I am. No, no you're not. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what the hell am I supposed to do then? You know, like everything's going to shit. <laughs> and, and the crystal was really clear. It said, go and see it all. You, you know, you need to, to observe this stuff. You need to see the world. You need to record it in some way. Um, and I left that meditation angry, like really angry. Um, I felt like, like, oh, like what? I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to be like the journalist that's, or the, you know, or, or the observer on the outside. I can't do anything. I have no agency. Um, and what I, what I realized over time, like working with that message, was that the the stones the crystals have a much greater time span that they have existed through than than we do and what is seen as important is very different than what we see in our short human time span as important um and that, that witnessing and observing, I kind of got to this place where I was like, okay, I'm going to be the cosmic librarian. You know, I'm going to like create record of um, what is. And I think of places like New Orleans and Venice and, you know, places that won't exist. So when we talk about harnessing an energy, I think the place to start is, is again, like, is it yours to harness? And if it's not, that sends you down a whole different path. And it might not be a a path that you're immediately happy with, right? But when we're dealing with, when we're dealing with the liminal, when we're dealing with um, who we are disembodied, who we are without our physical selves, um, it's a very different place. And so what I would say is if you're having trouble stepping into warrior energy, it might be because you're not a warrior. It might be because you have a different job in these very, very difficult times. Um, And there are lots of important jobs. You know, I think if you look out in the world, you can see who the warriors are, (laughs) right? (laughs) They're not running around saying, how do I be a, a warrior? Like you can see who the warriors are. Mm-hmm. Greta is a warrior, right? Greta Thunberg, warrior. Um, and I think that that's an archetype that we, we find appealing because it feels powerful. It's kind of like everybody wants wolf as their <laughs> spirit guide, right? <laughs> um, but there are lots of jobs. Mm-hmm. And so I would say 
if you are having trouble connecting with the warrior archetype, if you're having trouble connecting with that energy, pause and ask the question, like, is this mine to take on? Is this mine to take on now? You know, there have been times in my life where I've, I have been in warrior energy, um, but I was very clearly told that's done, that's over, that's not who you are right now. Um, so I would start there if you're having trouble with the connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and uh, I, I'm sure there's some kind of um, pithy way of saying it I can't think of right now, but I think the parallel is um, clearly there with the mode scale. Like I, it's still taking me, I've been working with rabbit for years now, probably seven years. I'm still a little ambivalent <laughs> about like <laughs> rabbit. It's like, is that really me? You know, <laughs> like, but this is this is the ally that's teaching me so much about things that you don't find in books. It comes directly from the animal. It comes directly from the, the hide that I tan of the animal. It comes directly from the bones that I'm putting in the broth. Like it, it, it's not still revealing itself. Right. Even though it's, it's very different from wolf. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And and I'm, you know, listening to you, it sounds like you feel this way also. If it, if it just seems like ridiculously easy, you probably made it up and it's not actually, you know what I mean? Like we all have things that our brain, our brain grabs onto. Um, like, yes, wolf is my spirit animal and I only work with emeralds and you know what I mean? Like we all have these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it just all feels easy and doesn't challenge you at all, then that's not spirit. Right. Mm-hmm. That's ego. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. What uh, allies are you working with mostly right now and, and what's your work with them? Yeah. So I actually recently got Kim Kranz's archetype deck, mm-hmm. Yeah, which, which I was totally resisting because um, I didn't find the images as appealing as some of her other images, mm-hmm. but like that thing sucked me in right away. <laughs> which was interesting. And so she um, has tools as archetypes. And the, the tool that I'm working with right now is the sword, mm-hmm. which is also the pen. Mm-hmm. Um, and just really working on this idea of um, using, using um, my edges well using the places that cut, using the places that say yes and no, um, and making sure that my writing is, is at that level of clarity. So mm-hmm. it's, been, it's been fun because that's a, a different type of archetype than I you know, often work with. I work with seasonal archetypes and with animal, vegetable, mineral, and um, more like human form archetypes, mm-hmm. right? And so to have this like tool presented to me, I was like, oh, this is amazing. And then when I realized that like the pen and the sword are, are parallel, I was like, huh, this is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did a reading with those cards that I think I will be working with probably for the next year at least, if mm-hmm. not longer. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm it's just the circular cards. I still, it's like, you know, when you're like, I love a thing, but there's a thing that's not quite working, but may, I, I often think that, oh, that's somewhere I need to just give it more time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. but I, I love the notion of uh, tools as archetypes. 
Yeah. And for me, I wasn't, I just had decided I wasn't going to get them. And then my online community bought them for me as a holiday present. Um, And I even had that moment of like, should I just return these? And I was like, no, they, you know, they came for a reason. And think of the circle as a vortex. Like I went, (laughs) I dove right in um, (laughs) and, and have found them to be incredibly useful. Hmm. Yeah, I got, I can't remember why I got the deck. I, I mean, I I get all the decks that seem to, you know, be new or different, or you know, and and it's interesting to see an artist, um, and you know, creators' work evolve over time. Um, yes. just since we're talking about it, people are are interested. It's like actually the book that accompanies the. I like the book more than the deck. Let's put it that way. The book that accompanies it was kind of a, enough of a jewel for me. I was like, oh wow, I could just do some bibliomancy here if I don't want to work with the cards, right? Just like let it pop yeah. open because, yeah, her writing has really evolved. Um, her writing has evolved so much. I'm I'm glad you brought that up because I love this book and I have not loved her previous books. Yes. Mm -hmm. Previously, I really loved the cards and I was like, these are beautiful. And I don't always agree with what she's saying in the guidebook. Mm -hmm. Um, This one, the guidebook is a, the guidebook is a gem. It It truly is. is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally agree. (laughs) <laughs> little shout out to Kim Cranston. Yeah. <laughs> um, so as we're winding up here, Maya, I always ask everyone the same uh, question. I'm curious, um, you know, you even alluded to your evolution over time and, you know, you're, you're a 50 year old woman. This is not, uh, you know, grief and rage, whether for the planet or just in personal, you know, or interpersonal situations, they're like not new. So you've probably kind of honed some things and some things might be new edges, but I'm just curious how you personally cope with grief and rage right now when those emotions come up, what do you do? Yeah. I, I mean, the simplest answer is I go outside. Mm-hmm. I'm incredibly lucky. We um, live in the woods. And so I, I, as soon as I step outside, everything shifts. Um, I think that the human world is a hot mess right now. And I know that when people hear that, what people often think is, it's a hot mess because of someone else. I'm sitting in my spiritual spot doing all the things and everyone else is messing up. But I see our, I see our spiritual community. Like when I read posts and things, um, I think our spiritual community is also a hot mess. And I think that it's reflecting what I see in um, the larger world. The hate that I see in the larger world, I see in our spiritual community. And I see it, um, I see it, put in a way that seems like it's okay, right? We're going to protect this underprivileged community or person. Um, but what, what I see is that we are building walls instead of building kinship. And I, you know, I go back over and over, like this is the thing that, this is where my grief and rage are right now. Um, I go back to people I have known over the years. I go back to Ireland where I was a Jewish woman in this Celtic culture. And I was so jealous that they had goddesses. I was so jealous. I was like, they have goddesses. I like, where can I find a powerful woman who's not just married to some man in, in like the faith of my childhood, which I didn't really believe in, but it was still my lineage. And I would I would be digging back and I'd be saying to my Irish friends, you know, I I can't 
I can't find mention of a goddess. Like, do these people even exist? Do are my people just patriarchal assholes? Mm-hmm. What do I come from? And I remember my group of, of Irish women friends saying to me, have you ever heard the story of the Ark of, of the Covenant of Israel being brought to Ireland to the Hill of Tara? And I said, I said, no. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, that's a story we tell here, that when the second temple was um, invaded, that the Israelites escaped and they brought the Torah to the Hill of Tara and that it's still buried here somewhere. So you are our kin. So you can have our goddesses because you are our kin. And I remember talking years later to a Cherokee friend and I don't remember what it was that we were talking about, but again, it was me struggling. Like, this is not my land. I don't, I don't, you know, am I allowed to relate to these plants? And he said to me, have you ever heard the story that the Cherokee are the lost tribe of Israel? And I said, no. And he said, well, that's a story we tell. You're my cousin. You belong here. And so what I see in the world that brings me so much rage and so much grief is this new wave of spirituality that says, I am not you. You are not me. Go study your lineage. Go find your heritage somewhere else. And what I remember is all the times that I was told, you are my kin. Whether we can prove that anthropologically, archeologically, that doesn't matter. Until we see each other and the rocks and the stones and the trees and the world as kin, we are not in right relationship. Mm -hmm. What I'm hearing you talk about is an incredible generosity within relationship um, of those people extending that to you it reminds me of um in studying the eradication of gallic culture in scotland and the displacement through the clearances blah 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 um that uh, i don't mean blah 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 to minimize fucking <laughs> attempted genocide on a cultural you know by an imperialist power i think people know um but one of the people of color who also because you don't have to be white to be Gallic, right? It's a language-based culture. Um, And so uh, he had written that, you know, basically along the lines of only the oppressed can liberate both themselves and the oppressor. And so, you know, and and not saying that there isn't a, a role for privileged people or white people or whatever to play in dismantling imperialism and all that kind of stuff or oppression, but just that it requires a generosity of spirit and a humility and a willingness to, you know, forgive and be forgiven and sort of say, well, how do we honor ancestors who weren't very honorable? Well, the way is to be honorable and that's to be in relationship. It's to be in, it's to be in kinship with everyone. So um, yeah, I I really hear how fortunate you've been to have these wonderful um, experiences of belonging and welcome yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think what what I've come to is if you go back through your family tree, you will find that you are related to the oppressed and you are related to the oppressor. 100 percent. 
There's, yeah, there is no binary victim or perpetrator. Yeah, yeah. we all have both. Mm-hmm. We all have both. And so if we all have both in our lineage, we get to choose who we are today. We get to choose who we're, how we're going to relate to other people who have both in their lineage. And um, I, I just think that until we all make the choice of claiming kinship, we're in, we're in big trouble. You know, I, I saw a great piece on PBS the other day about scientists looking at lemurs because lemurs are so genetically close to us and they can do this thing called going into torpor where they kind of become cold blooded for like six months. And, and the scientists are trying to figure out um, how we can learn from lemurs and be more like lemurs so we can like, go into torpor if we're ill or something like that. And I just thought, wow, we can conceive that we are related to lemurs but we can't conceive that we are related to each other. Right. Mm-hmm. 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 Well, I really appreciate your reminder to go outside and get embedded. <laughs> things shift, right? Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for your perspective and, and your teachings today, Maya. I really appreciated having you on the show. What else can you tell us about um, pre-order? Is it basically go to Amazon, that's the best place? Or would you prefer people go to their local bookstore? Does it make a difference? Actually, the very best thing for pre-ordering the crystallary is any bookseller, whether it's Amazon, Barnes and Noble, your local bookseller, um, to pre-order because there's something called reporting stores, and those are those are mm. bookstores. Mm. Um, and pre-orders matter, but they only get recorded if you go to a recording store. So, mm. yeah. So don't even buy it from me. Buy it from right. a bookstore. Just as long as it's a bookstore. Great. Yeah. Okay. Any bookstore. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, Maya. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Carmen. I really appreciate being here. Mm, Lots to think about in that one, hey? Um, You'll find links to Maya's books and also to her website in the show notes on numinouspodcast.com. And did you know she also has two bricks and mortar herbiary stores? Yeah, one in Philadelphia, one in Asheville. And she also does lots of online courses and she has an extensive blog. Um... And, you know, in this episode, I wanted to mention Maya and I connected on um, both having had the experience of stepping into liminal spaces uh, when we were traveling and in what she called ancient places. And I I just want to acknowledge that, like, North America is an ancient place, too, (laughs) except for those of us of European ancestry, um, our, our way, way, way back people weren't buried here. And so um, we don't necessarily always have as many of those experiences um, here in North America. Uh, and it reminded me of, um, you know, I guess a- as we're recording, what's very much alive for me is there are people um, who are participating in peaceful resistance uh, in support of the people of uh, the Wet'suwet'en nation, and here in my city of Victoria, but also across Canada and in the U.S., and now even globally, there are solidarity events uh, in support of the Wet'suwet'en. And, you know, can you imagine um, a pipeline going through the center of Crete? No. Could you imagine a pipeline being laid down in Provence? No. Could you imagine a proposed pipeline uh, 
wanting to be placed near the energy vortexes where white people like to vacation in Arizona? Absolutely not. So, you know, indigenous folks in North America have those same transpersonal experiences in these liminal spaces here. Yes, non-indigenous folks do too, but again, not in the same way, not in the same way that I do when I go to where my way back people are. So I would like you to consider if you are a non-indigenous person and you haven't been to a solidarity event um, in support of indigenous folks who are um, asking for title to be recognized, then consider this an invitation. And if you're not really up to speed on what's happening in Wet'suwet'en territory uh, or what these solidarity um, uh, events are like and, and why, and why the title is uh, uh, something that we all need to care about being upheld, then there are lots of people that you could follow on Instagram, for instance, to find out. And I'll drop some links in the show notes there as well. So today, for my listener shout out and thank you, I would like to thank all of the people, um, Indigenous and non-Indigenous allies, who are attending solidarity events in support of the Wet'suwet'en resistance. I see you. I feel you. Thank you. What you are doing is very important. A thousand thank yous. So, hey... If you would like to add your thoughts to the conversations that we had today, you can uh, go on Instagram. Uh, you'll find me at my profile name is just under my full name, at Carmen Spaniola, C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Just say hello, look for the uh, episode picture in my feed and drop a comment. I'd love to hear your thoughts and um, love to have a conversation with you over there. Until next time. Take care.